This is a Pele Media Podcast. Welcome back to Jurassic Park Minute, everyone. Jurassic Park Minute is the fan podcast where we explore the movie Jurassic Park minute by minute. My name is Brady, and I am joined today by a very special guest, Mr. Ryan Haupt. Ryan, thank We're you fans. so much. For... There we it's go. A fan podcast, you guys. <laughs> We're all fans of this movie. We're all fans. For fans, by fans. How you doing, man? I am well. How are you? Awesome. Doing pretty good. Doing pretty good. Just ready to get into another cool minute of this uh this movie, we got a lot of interesting stuff going on today. And it's a cool minute. We're going to have a hot take. And we're going to have a hot take on a cool minute. I like it. <laughs> so um, before we get started, I just want to remind everybody uh, that you are a paleontologist in a rather specific way. Can you explain to us um, that it's not paleontology in the, uh, the sense that I think a lot of people understand paleontology to be, and that's just the study of dinosaurs when, in fact, there's so much more to it. What exactly do you do? That's a great question. Paleontology is not just the study of dinosaurs. Paleontology is the study of past life. That's literally what it what it means when you break it down mm-hmm. into the into the root terms. And so, um, I'm not a dinosaur person, that's, that, and that is how we refer to ourselves. I have like a friend who <laughs> studies sharks, and we call her a shark person. And I have a friend who who um, studies. Uh, I'm blanking on what my friends study <laughs> whales and we call them a whale person. So you tend to get labeled with whatever, like the thing that you study is right. you know, dinosaur paleontologists or dinosaur people and, and let that bring whatever image to your mind that you like. So I'm a <laughs> mammal person. Uh, some of my best friends are mammals and I study them and I love them and I love all animals and I'm also not a digger. So like when, when that whole line comes up in the Dominican where it's like, you'll never get Grant out of Montana. He's a digger. Um, that's wow. not me. I, I, I've done digs. I like digging, but the the type of paleontology I do is is term paleoecology, and I specifically study mammalian ecosystems of the Cenozoic. So Jurassic Park, the Jurassic era was a part of the Mesozoic. Uh, the Jurassic mm-hmm. period was part of the Mesozoic era. I got to get those those terms right, or otherwise I'll get yelled at. Mm-hmm. Um, so I I want the big picture. I want what's happening in an entire ecosystem, generally focused on one particular type of animal within that ecosystem. But I still want to know the broader context. So I actually spend much more time in museums than I spend in the field because for me, it's easier to answer the kinds of questions that I have about the world when everything has already been cleaned, the dirt's off of it, it's got a label, it's been identified, it's been dated, and it's in a drawer, comfortably resting for me to come in with my tools and start my analysis. For me, that's the optimal place to do paleontology, but it's only the optimal place to do paleontology because of the questions I'm asking. So different types of paleontology require different types of techniques to answer those questions, and so there's absolutely a need for people to go out there and be diggers, and so I'm not trying to um, discount the digging. But it's uh, it's not necessarily yeah. where I'm at with the majority of the time I spend as a paleontologist, and honestly, most of the time I'm just sitting at my laptop. <laughs> yeah, it's almost like no. It's it's a... it's great that we're because uh, we're we're actually going to be having um, some more paleontologists coming on the show. Uh, you in, don't listen to a the... word they say. If they just if they contradict me, they're wrong. <laughs> no, I was going to say it's it's going to be awesome to have like you know a broader spectrum of of perspective on prehistoric life. But uh, tell me, uh, tell us a little bit more about the podcast that you produce as well, the Science Sort of podcast. 
Yeah, so I do a podcast called Science Sort of. I started it back in 2009 with my buddy Patrick. Uh, Patrick was at the tail end of his PhD. Patrick was doing the paleontology of when crocodiles or crocodilian-like animals evolved saltwater tolerance. So like okay. that was his that was his project and I was helping out with that a little bit in a tangential way. You can imagine with a topic that specific, you get a little bit in the weeds, you know, you tend to just lose the broader picture of what it is you're doing. And so he was kind of reaching the end of his PhD doldrums and was thinking to himself, I want to I want to remember why I loved science. And so he cornered me as this undergrad kind of tech media savvy person in working in the lab that he was doing his PhD in. He says, hey, Ryan, you know, I kind of, I want to do something that's like a science outreach project. So what do you think about doing a podcast? And I I had a little bit of foray into podcasting. And so I was like, yeah, let's do a podcast. And because the whole point of the podcast was let's remember why we love science, we decided to not make it about any specific field. We just said, let's just talk about science with whoever will talk to us about it. Yeah. So that's where the whole idea of, it's science, but sort of. So, like, it's essentially you're listening in on a happy hour amongst scientists. And so we're all just drinking beer. We're having a good time. But invariably, we're going to talk about our science. We're going to talk about the things we're excited about. We're going to talk about the new hot study. And then I try to edit it so we sound halfway intelligent. <laughs> and, and we put it on the internet for people to hopefully enjoy. It sounds like something that's uh, much more easily approachable. That's as the opposed goal. to, like, sitting in a classroom or something. Oh, yeah. So I often say, like... If you ever picture any of us wearing a lab coat and standing at a lectern, we have failed. <laughs> that's gotcha. not what the show is supposed to sound like. Yeah. So we've got a lot of cool stuff going on in this minute, but I think the overall, just the, the most important thing that's going on, the most consistent thing that we're seeing in this minute is the fact that T-Rex's vision is based on movement. Or because, you know, we've got Gennaro who's moving around just enough for the T-Rex to see him and just go down, you know, just like have him for lunch. But, um, which is funny because I think Gennaro is the only guy who didn't get the memo, don't move when he's around. But, uh, we also get Tim and, uh, excuse me, um, Grant and Lex, you know, just petrified, right? As the thing is up in their face and it's by not moving that they are saved. Do you happen to know if there's any legitimacy to this or not? Drum roll, please. But, uh, whatever. Yeah, no, there's <laughs> nothing. This is nonsense. It's, yeah. uh, so you know, I know you and, and Kyle are big fans of the late Michael Crichton. Oh, yeah. Um, as was I at, I imagine, a similar age, kind of early high school. You're just kind of devoured all of his books in sequence, if, if you were like me. But um, Hell, yeah. While, while clearly a gifted writer and while clearly a very intelligent man, um, did get some things wrong, in part because of artistic license and in part because of personal preference. So, uh, right. obviously the man was, was a staunch climate change denier at the end of his life and his final yeah, book I speaks that. to that, which was unfortunate. Because mm-hmm. uh, I, I, I hate for that to be his legacy for, for somebody whose work I mostly enjoyed. Um, yeah. But that is the, the reality of it that we have to confront. It sounds like uh, he kind of did this whole vision-based movement thing, uh, uh, partly based on where the science was at the time, partly based on expediency and storytelling. So mm-hmm. we didn't know as much about these animals when this this book and movie came out. I mean, that's just... The science itself has come a long way in the 20-plus years since this movie was released, and that's a good thing. We should celebrate the advances we've made in the science. 
And yeah. so some of the things we've been able to do is take a T-Rex skull. So again, I've mentioned this in previous episodes. T-Rex is a relatively rare animal. We don't have that many examples of T-Rex in the fossil record. Um, T-Rex, as we, as far as we know, it only existed for about 2 million years, the end of the late Cretaceous, which is like, it sounds like a lot, but that's yeah. a blip. Yeah, it's a, it's a blank of an eye, yeah. And, and as, I think there are less than a dozen semi or mostly complete T-Rex skeletons in the world. So there's just, Damn. there's not a lot to work with. There's not a lot of data. Yeah. But from what we have, we can, we have enough of like the skull to actually mold the brain, right? And again, touching back on this idea that we're all sharing these common ancestors, the brain of, you know, tetrapods, which are the land-based fish things that we all evolved from, we all share similar brain structures. So if you mold the brain of a T-Rex, you can actually see, oh, actually, a decent part of its brain was dedicated to eyesight. And you can see a decent part of its brain was directed to smell. And so while a T-Rex was by no means an intelligent animal, <laughs> it was not a brainiac, it, yeah. we can still tell that it dedicated the things that it needed to dedicate to be a successful hunter slash scavenger, which I know is something you guys have talked about. And so that's one line of evidence where we can say that, okay, yeah, it could obviously see movement. Another line of evidence is when you also take the skull, you can model with computers, which are these newfangled things that allow us to use numbers to <laughs> make science happen. You can model what was the T-Rex's range of vision staring out its eyes. So I, I, some of your listeners might have heard of this concept that uh, predatory animals tend to have their eyes move towards the front. Have you heard this? Uh, no, go into this. Okay, so picture a cat, right? Okay. Staring into a cat's face. The eyes are staring straight back at you. Now picture a deer or a horse or a cow. Where are its eyes? Closer to the sides. They're, they're way off to the sides, right? Yeah. Super useful if you're prey item because having your eyes way off to the sides, you can't focus in on like a single object as easily, but you can see almost behind you, which is great if you're being sneaked up on, right? Yeah, Snuck, yeah. Sneak, sneaked up, snuck up. Which is it? Whichever it is. We'll go with the, whichever it is. Yeah, the one that you said. We're going we're to go with that. I think I said the wrong one, so let's go with it. Um, so <laughs> when you're a predator, <laughs> when you're a predator, if you'll notice, human's eyes, pretty, pretty mm -hmm. towards the front. When you're a predator, your eyes tend to be able to, like, laser focus on a single object so you can track it and you can hunt it and you can get it. And then when you're a prey item, you tend to have your eyes off to the side so you can see a bigger range with less pure focus. So the T-Rex and other theropod dinosaurs all had vision that was really good at, like, focusing in. It had a really good range of vision relative to its focus capacity. So based on those kind of studies, T-Rex vision would have been up there with modern-day predatory birds like hawks and eagles, which are known to have exceptional vision. Also, real quick, mm -hmm. I think part of the reason they did the T-Rex vision based on movement is a nod to the frog DNA. Okay. So it's the How whole idea of a frog sitting on the lily pad and the fly is buzzing around and it's able to track the fly perfectly from the movement and then stick out with the tongue and, and snatch it. Huh. I never thought about that. Yeah, I think that's I think, think that's that part of what's happening here. Yeah, I think from a storytelling perspective, that's what they were doing. I've never thought of that. Well, um, that's why you have guests on, right? That's why we have guests on, exactly. <laughs> uh, so now that we've covered um, T Rex a little bit, let's get back to your experience with the movie. Uh, so we said that you don't remember the first time you saw it. We just remember the first time you weren't allowed to see it. Uh, right. Is 
is dress like as someone who's interested in say i know you said you're not really a dinosaur person per se but as someone who's interested in prehistoric life and prehistoric study do you find yourself going back to this movie uh for more than just the entertaining story um for example like when i watch this movie i'm going to it for one the story the scenario the characters and everything but also just to get a glimpse of prehistoric life dropped into modern day you know to, to our world today um whenever you watch this movie do you get something out of it as a scientist that the average moviegoer is probably not getting? I don't think I get anything out of it that an average moviegoer doesn't get. Um, because mm-hmm. one of the things this movie does so well is it brings everyone along. And I love that about yeah. it. The scene where Grant and uh, Ellie first see the Brachiosaur. I mean, if you're not swept up in that with them, yeah. like that's what, it, that's what it feels like to be a scientist. Like that's a, that's a beautiful moment as a scientist that I wish I could, I could share with people, but I'm not a filmmaker. So I need Steven Spielberg to do it for me. And in this moment, he does it like you see the look of awe, but you almost immediately see that they've got questions. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's it, man. That's the, that's the sauce right there. That's to me, that's science is you see something that blows your mind. And within 30 seconds, you're like, but wait a second, hang on. I got to ask you something about this. Yeah. I so I get really really swept up in those moments, and I I, I hope you can hear that in my voice that I'm I like can, legit yeah. excited because yeah. that to me is the feeling of science. It's this feeling of wonder, awe, shock, amazement, discovery, and then but all of a sudden you're like, but hang on, we got to figure this out too. Yeah. So you can have all that, and I think a lot of times. When people are critical of science, um, I don't know if you, I don't know if you know this, Brady, but like, eh, there's some people who don't like science that much. And that's kind of a bummer. <laughs> yeah, um, kind of a bummer, a little bit. One of the one of the criticisms that get labeled that gets leveled against scientists is that oh, you're know-it-alls, you think you know everything. Yeah, could not be farther from the truth. Scientists are probably, I, w- I would say, one of the best groups at admitting they don't know things. Because okay. if we knew everything, I wouldn't have a job. Like, There's got to be someone out there asking the questions. Yeah, what am I researching if we know everything already? What we do know, we know based on evidence and logic and reason, and so we try to know that with a degree of certainty that is probably above and beyond what the general public requires for a belief in something. You know, I, I often go back to the... Uh, you fan of Mitch Hedberg, the late comedian? Oh, yeah. So like, he talks about going... And getting a donut, and they try to give him a receipt for the donut. <laughs> he goes, "I don't, I don't need a receipt for the donut." As if I have some skeptical friend that's gonna be like, "Don't even act like I didn't buy that donut yeah. yesterday. I got the receipt right here." You even sound like, like him. <laughs> I, I've, I've worked on that impression a lot. Nice. Um, so scientists are that skeptical friend who want to see the receipt for the donut. <laughs> And it's not because we're jerks. It's just because we like that's our that's our standard. You know, we have yeah. a standard of evidence that's I think a little bit higher than what is normal. And I'm so I'm not claiming we're normal. <laughs> I'm <laughs> yeah. just claiming we're we're passionate weirdos who get really excited and really interested and then immediately question it and we question it in a way that would drive a normal person insane. Yeah. Um, and this movie shows that I think in a way that's loving, um, mm-hmm. and it also shows it from a couple different perspectives. You know, you you talked about in the early episodes of this show, you're going to look at this movie from the perspective of paleontology, which is like a very outdoor, field-driven science. But you're also going to talk about it from genetics, which is like clean lab and static-free gloves and like crazy, delicate, precise, you know, 
procedures that have to get done to get the things to happen right. And so science is this, it's a, it's a big thing, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. It, so we're not, we're not a homogenous group of know-it-alls. We're a very diverse and weird group of know-it-alls. Yeah. <laughs> I, I love that about us. Somebody's, so. somebody's got to be out there asking the questions. So that, you know, to the guy who's saying like, oh, you think you have all the answers, you can say like, no, man, I'm, I'm asking the questions to have an answer for you. So Right. I mean, I, I awesome. often say that paleontologists would be the, after physicists invent the time machine, paleontologists are going to storm into their labs and steal it so we can go look at stuff. <laughs> and then you've got somebody like Ian Malcolm, who is a standout in this in this film, and an amazing character, and like it's you know there are people who would argue that mathematics isn't even science, and so he's not even really a scientist, but he's clearly yeah. a logician and a thinker and a and a deeply intellectual person and a curious person, and um, it will not get political here, but if I could say one thing about where we're at right now mm-hmm. is I think there are people out there who just aren't curious. That makes me sad. Yeah, and no, I think I... this movie is a movie about. You, you you and Kyle compare this movie a lot to Frankenstein, mm-hmm. which I Absolutely. get. I think that's an apt comparison. But this is also a movie about unbridled curiosity and maybe not thinking through what living out your curiosity means. But I would hate for people to come away from this movie thinking that the curiosity itself is bad. Right. Yeah. I think it's really important to be curious. And I want people to be curious. And I think... You know, I think you had me on the show because you were curious. You wanted to hear what a different perspective was like. And that's not to get as philosophical as Ian Malcolm. I think that that's, that's actually a really important thing. No, absolutely. And uh, it's, it's great that this film does include that and does remember that. In a, in a film that I think in, in the hands of anybody else might have just been, and as I've said you know, ad nauseum, just an adventure film, running from dinosaurs. This film does keep that questioning, uh, that curiosity in mind that you speak of. And uh, shows, you know, the importance of being responsibly curious, I guess. Well, and- you, you talked about, you guys talked earlier in the show about other casting options for Alan Grant. And one of the other casting mm-hmm. options was um, Harrison Ford, who turned it down, thankfully. Right. Uh, yeah, I, think I, he I have to agree. It. I have to agree. And I, as much as I love the gif, and I'll use the gif, gif, gif. I think cut it, I, I cut it however it makes me sound best. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, of Indiana Jones eating an apple saying, nothing surprises me, I'm a scientist. No, you're wrong. That's not how it works. <laughs> Everything yeah. surprises you. And so that that cockiness, as opposed to the Alan Grant that we got, less sure-footedness, and literal less sure-footedness. He falls over when he first sees a thing that confronts his worldview, you know? Yeah. I think speaks to the character of science much better. I think if Steven Spielberg, you know, has, he has a lot of excellent qualities as a director, but he is very good at somehow getting awe and wonder to translate onto a screen. Yeah. For all ages. Uh, yeah. E.T., as much as it terrified me as a child, Mark, to get into that because <laughs> I don't need nightmares tonight, is a fairy tale. <laughs> yeah. You know, War Horse, I didn't see, but Saving Private Ryan, like, it's a gruesome, gruesome war film that still says something about the human condition that makes you in awe and wonder at what humans are capable of, both in their horror and in their self selflessness. And so he's really good at getting emotions that shouldn't translate to the screen right there in front of you in a way that feels natural and doesn't feel ham-fisted and forced. Because the book, the book doesn't do that. 
The book doesn't do it. It's a little bit more of a. It's a. It's a different approach. It's drier. Drier. That's but what that's, I mean. Drier. That's okay because it's not a visual medium. Mm-hmm. Correct. It's relying on your imagination of what these animals could be, and you know, to me, Jurassic Park is almost the spiritual successor to something like Richard Donner's Superman. How do you mean? That's interesting. What could, we... The tagline for Richard Donner's Superman is "You will believe a man can fly." And when you watch that movie, you do, because Christopher Reeve's performance sells it. The effects are just good enough for the era that they were made in that you believe it. And so the whole piece that should could be corny, it could overuse or underuse the technology of its time ineffectively to make it all kind of fall flat. It somehow doesn't, and it's this magic alchemy of everything that was available at the time to just pull it off enough. Yeah. And I think Jurassic Park is the same sort of thing, where it's like, this technological melange of old and new and storytelling techniques of old and new. And, you know, you guys have talked about this a lot. You watch this movie and you believe these are dinosaurs. You Absolutely. believe you. I mean, it, it, it's palpably real that there, there are animals on screen that are really a combination of CGI and puppets. And I'm into it. I like it. Yeah. So, all right, good. <laughs> good. Something's working. No, no I mean, I, I, I use the comparison to the, the 70s Superman as a, a positive. I think. Yeah, you know, oh yeah. Yeah. No, definitely. And, um, you and will I, believe a man can dinosaur. Yeah. <laughs> that should have been the tagline for this movie. Should have been. Should have been. And, you know, something I've always found kind of funny is the fact that we always hear the T-Rex's feet, you know, kind of stomping back into uh, to let us know when he's around. And when she comes up out of the car and screams, it's already right on top of us. And we didn't hear it come back from after having just eaten Gennaro way over by the bathroom. It's conceivable to think that she might be like tiptoeing back towards us because of the fact that she wants to hunt, as he says earlier. Well, she is digitigrade, so she is literally walking on her toes all the time, which is what I meant by the whole human-to-dog comparison. Right. So, So like humans, we walk on the entire flat of our foot like a bear or a raccoon, but theropod dinosaurs walked more like a cat or a dog where they're just walking up on their toes and that's digitigrade Mm -hmm. is the is the scientific term for that because they're walking on their digits gotcha um i i don't love the pile driver t-rex thing i love the scene with the water did you guys Mm -hmm. talk about how they did that effect yeah we did okay cool so i'm not gonna get into that but (laughs) there's no animal on earth today that walks like it's a two sets of pile drivers like elephants don't do that and yeah. it's because a if you're a hunter it's bad strategy just strategically to let your prey know that you're that far out but b like you would hurt yourself walking like that yeah like if you if you or i went around tomorrow as bipedal apes and slammed our foot down as hard as we could every time <laughs> we took a step like we'd have a sprained ankle by the end of the day and you can't have a sprained ankle as a hunter if you're a scavenger you probably can get away with it but as a hunter, you can't you can't do that. You have to not hurt yourself just by walking. So, yeah, good deal, man. Well, I tell you what, I think that's about all I have for this minute. How about you? Me too. All righty. Well, thank you so much for coming on today again, Ryan. And we're gonna have you back for one more day tomorrow. So tune back in tomorrow, everybody. And until then, hold on to your butts. Jurassic Park Minute is a fan-supported podcast. If you like the podcast, then leave us a review on iTunes. You can contact us at JurassicParkMinute at gmail.com and visit us online at JurassicParkMinute.com, Facebook.com slash JurassicParkMinute, and Twitter.com slash JurassicMinute. Minute. 
You've been listening to a Pele Media Podcast. For premium content and exclusive podcasts, visit us at patreon.com slash Media. Check us out on Facebook at facebook.com slash Media, and follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash Media.